Good morning. And let's open with prayer. Uh, Gracious Father in heaven, we again are so thankful to call you our Father and to dwell together in study. We ask that your spirit of truth, your spirit of love will join us. Help us grow closer to the perfection that you have designed for us. Uh, Help our minds to be enlightened, our characters to be transformed, and to come into the unity and fellowship that you have for us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Before we get into our our lesson, which is a new quarter, a few announcements. I want to remind people of the Power of Love uh, training and equipping course that's coming up in January 17 to 19. Uh, We now have uh, 380 people signed up uh, for the event. We're very much looking forward to it. We're going to be blessed to have uh, about a day and a half of... uh, of uh, music by Michael O'Brien that will uh, be able to provide some music uh, for the program. And Friday evening, he'll be doing a concert for us uh, right after we have our meal together. Meals are provided, and and uh, we've been working very hard to make sure that they are uh, delicious and and healthy meals for everyone. Uh, so we hope you will join us. And the and the goal, of course, is to not only fellowship network, but to help people come to a you know that overview. It says in education that the students should learn to view the word as a whole, bearing all the various parts of the grand central theme and showing how we can connect all those parts and how the, the great controversy story is unfolding through human history and we can tell those, those that, that effectively and be effective witnesses. Daniel, and we're doing lesson number one, and the lesson title is From Reading to Understanding. And I love the lesson title. Immediately, I hope when you read the lesson title, your you know, mental computer started dropping in references, and, and mine immediately triggered on you know, Christ Object Lessons, page 59, which reads, Merely to hear or to read the word is not enough. He who desires to be profited by the scriptures must meditate upon the truths that have been presented to him. By earnest attention and prayerful thought, he must learn the meaning of the words of truth. And drink deep of the spirit of, whole, of the holy oracles. This is profound. Just hearing the word is not sufficient. And this is a key to Bible study. It's actually not knowing the original words, but the intended meaning. That's what's important. So when I was doing the paraphrases, this was one of the key principles I applied. What is the true meaning I received some emails taking issue with this verse or that verse uh, from individuals because the English words I chose were not the exact uh, words from the Greek uh, uh, that were potentially used. And I emailed back that that's really not my primary concern. My primary concern was the meaning. So I challenged them to tell me what they think the verse means. Not what the words were. What does it mean? And we can do this in English. You know, with English, you can create puns, you can use words that have multiple meanings, uh, you can do inferences and all kinds of things. And this is why people often have misunderstandings, because you use a word and one person hears it one way, and one person hears it another way, the same word, and so I asked them what it means, and they didn't reply back. This is what we want to do throughout all the Bible, though. It's even more important when we go beyond specifically the words, when the words themselves are being used symbolically or metaphorically or as a simile or as a parable. We have to go beyond even the words now to the, to the meaning isn't literal. It actually means something else. We have to think, what is the meaning? That's what we do all through the Bible. I have some basic guidelines that I've put in the notes that I've found to be quite helpful for rightly interpreting Scripture. One, 
we must understand the overall context of Scripture. Not just the immediate context. Many Bible professors, theology professors, will tell you, you must understand the context. And their primary focus is on the local historic context. And I think it's important to understand the local historic context, but it's not the most important. The most important is the overall context of Scripture, which is the great controversy setting. This is the most important context in order to really understand what's happening. And that context is a battle between Christ and Satan, in which God is love all the time, and Satan is a being of deceit and selfishness, working to misrepresent God and to destroy what God has created. So number one, we have to have that overall context. Number two, we have to understand that the battle between God and Satan is not a physical battle. It's not a physical battle. It's not a battle of physical power. It's a battle of ideas, concepts, beliefs, and God's prime weapons. The primary weapons of God's kingdom are truth, love, freedom, or liberty. These are the prime weapons. Satan's prime weapons are lies, which result in fear-based selfishness, fear selfishness, and coercion, threat, force, not freedom, the opposite. They're exact opposites, if you understand them. Three, so overall context, understand the battles over ideas, concepts, and methods. Uh, three, the Bible is a revelation of the truth about God, his character methods, his plans to send Jesus to save humankind. It also exposes Satan as the source of evil, death, pain, suffering, and reveals that throughout all human history, whenever we deviate from God's designs, we suffer. He's also the source of accusations. Lies and accusations, that's right. Four, some specific rules for interpreting Bible prophecy, or the Bible at large, but Bible prophecy. If one part of the passage is symbolic or metaphorical, then the rest is symbolic or metaphorical, unless there is a clear and compelling reason to take it literally. If one part of the prophecy is symbolic or metaphorical, the other parts are symbolic and metaphorical, unless there's a clear and compelling reason to take it literally. The Bible will be, you'll see a lot of problems in Bible prophecies when people will take part of the phrase and then literally and part of the phrase uh, symbolically and back and forth, and it really creates a lot of confusion. The Bible will be used to interpret itself. In other words, symbol interpretation. Do you want, what's this symbol mean? You must first find the definition or literal translation from the scriptures before you go to outside scripture sources to try and find what it means. The general theme of Bible prophecies is the battle between Christ and Satan. That's the general context. God's character of love never changes. Therefore, interpretations will never result in God being represented with a character other than love. If we present God through Bible prophecy interpretations that put him in some other character, then, then we've misunderstood something. God's law of love never changes. Therefore, interpretations will not violate God's law of love. And God's other design laws never change. And so Bible prophecy must be in harmony with all of God's design laws. So, with that in mind, the lesson points out that Christ is the center of Daniel. Absolutely true. 
The context of Daniel, though, is what? Christ is the center of Daniel doing something. Working to achieve something. What is Christ in the center of Daniel working to achieve? Daniel's character. Daniel's character. Other thoughts? God is working very hard in Ezra's salvation. He's using Daniel to try to get through to the greatest ruler of the time. Because he knows the ruler will then, you know, send out his, what he knows to the rest of his entire kingdom, which was pretty much covered the known world at the time. So there's no question, God is working for the salvation of Nebuchadnezzar. He is working for the solidification of Daniel's character and his friend's character. Those are all truths. Is that the central message of the book of Daniel? Yep. See that contrast. Yep. God's kingdom and Babylon. So what's the central? What is Christ in the book of Daniel working to achieve? Yes. The salvation of his people. There you go. Freedom from, from what captivity? So all the major prophecies in, in, in Daniel, starting with the, the multi-metal man, how does everyone end? What's the conclusion of all the prophecy? God wins. So what is the theme of the, prophet, of, of the book of Daniel? Is it the overall theme that God is, Christ is the center working to oppose in the life of Nebuchadnezzar in, for Daniel uh, and the conflict going on there? But in a larger setting, he's working to rid his universe of sin and restore his kingdom and perfection. Isn't that the theme? The lesson also wants us to recognize the difference between classic and apocalyptic prophecy. Classic prophecy, and we're going to expand on this more later in one of the other days of the lesson. But just briefly, classic prophecy is a message specific for the people at that time with limited or little metaphor or symbols with direct and simple understood message, such as Jonah's message to Nineveh. God's going to destroy your wicked city. Very very specific, very very direct for the people. That's classic prophecy. Apocalyptic prophecy is prophecy that tells the future events and often contains many symbols, metaphors, and images that require lots of interpretation. So that's and we're going to come back to that. Sunday's lesson. The lesson asks the question, in what way is Christ the center of Scripture? Is it, and I'm going to ask you that, in what way? Is it merely about revealing God's character which certainly Christ came to do. If you see me, you've seen the Father. No question about that. But is that the end of his mission? Is that the end of the message? Or is there more? That not only Christ is the Son of God, and you've seen God, you've seen the Father, but, but he's actively working as the Father's agency to achieve a specific goal or outcome. Restore in us... To restore in the human species the image of God. I'm going to, yes, yes, I agree with that completely. Um, do the scriptures reveal Christ? Yes. But do they reveal more? Do they reveal also the truth about the Father? Do they reveal more? Do they reveal what the Father and the Son are trying to achieve? Yes. So exactly, it reveals the mission. The plan of salvation is revealed there. So we reveal the truth about God, 
We expose Satan as a liar and fraud, but we also reveal the plan to save humanity and cleanse the world from sin. That's also part of the revelation of scripture, is it not? So texts like this, 1 John 1, 29. And I'm, I'm emphasizing this because some might be stuck on the idea, well, the scriptures are primarily a revelation about God. They are a revelation about God. But they're a revelation about God and the mission he's won. So listen to uh, the, the John the Baptist. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's more than the Lamb of God who reveals the character of the Father. There's a mission here. He's coming to do something. And in doing that, taking away the sin of the world, he's achieving the goal that also simultaneously is revealing the character of the Father. Is it not? How about Hebrews 2, 14 and 15? Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in the slavery by their fear of death. Is this not more than just revelation? There's a mission, an achievement, a goal, an outcome he's achieving. Or, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Is this not also more than just revelation? It's achievement. And 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason, was to destroy the devil's work. What was the devil working to do? Destroy us. Destroy us, and specifically destroy the image of God in man and put Satan's image where God's image should be. And Christ, coming as a human being, destroyed the devil's work by restoring in humanity, the humanity he had, God again dwelt in humanity, and there's a human being who perfectly possesses the character of God, Jesus Christ. He destroyed the work of devil to efface the image of God in man. And all of us who trust him can have that transformation so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Linda. And I've said this before, but it works. it's very well uh, said here too. Luke 1, uh, starting with, it's talking about Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, who was said once he could speak, he prophesied. And this is what he said pertaining to Jesus' mission. Um, he has raised up a horn of salvation, um, as said through his holy prophets of long ago, verse 7 says, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable him, enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. One of his missions was to to remove the fear in us of God. So this is in one of those places where we hear the words. Do you understand the meaning? Many people will hear that and say, he came in order to free us from our enemies, the Romans, the agnostics, the atheists, the Muslims who will behead Christians today. Uh, They'll read it as a earthly might and power thing. Because that's right. But no, the enemies, the promise to Abraham was the promise of the seed that will crush the serpent's head. The ultimate enemy is sin. And the source of that 
rebellion, Satan. This is the enemy he came to crush. So I, I think that's beautifully said if we, again, understand the meaning. But the meaning can be misunderstood. So with this in mind, this, we understand that, that the scriptures not only reveal Christ, not only reveal God, but it reveals the mission he came to do. Then when we read the scriptures, old and new, do we see the conflict between good and evil being played out with Christ, the member of the Godhead, who is acting through human history to destroy sin and evil and save his creation? Is that how we read scripture? Do we interpret interpret the Bible stories through this lens? Would it mean we could understand that Satan then throughout Bible times is working to oppose, to obstruct, to stop the promise given to Adam and Eve and to Abraham about the seed coming. He's working to shut the avenue down. This is a context. If you don't understand this context, you will misunderstand the Old Testament. And so in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 335, by leading Israel... To this daring insult and blasphemy to Jehovah, Satan had planned to cause their ruin. Since they had proved themselves to be so utterly degraded, so lost to all sense of the privileges and blessings that God had offered them, and to their own solemn and repeated pledges of loyalty, the Lord would, he believed, Satan believed, divorce them from himself and devote them to destruction. Thus would be secured the extinction of the seed of Abraham. That seed of promise that was to preserve the knowledge of the living God and through whom he was to come. The true seed with a capital S that was to conquer Satan. The great rebel had planned to destroy Israel and thus thwart the purpose of God. This is the context of scripture. There is a battle between good and evil. Satan is working to stop God's plan. And when you read the stories of God acting in Old Testament times, you should be asking the question, what's happening in the avenue to keep, for the Messiah? Is God acting to keep open this avenue or and is Satan working to try to shut it down? And that's what will clarify many of the activities going on in the Old Testament. It's a key concept. Let's give some examples in Old Testament times where you can see Christ. One is in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses is tending his flocks, and it says uh, he saw a bush. And he says, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames from within the bush. And as he approached, uh, the voice was heard saying, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Speaking to him from the bush. Who is this God that's speaking to him from the bush? He's the angel of the Lord. Is within the bush. This is, Jesus is the member of the Godhead. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that, God, uh, that Jesus was the rock from which Israel drank in the desert. In other words, he's making the case that Jesus was the member of the Godhead who interacts with human history and that's what we find here and in other places. So, G- so the scripture is centered upon Christ. Jesus is, uh, when he meets with Moses, though, at the bush, does he simply say, hey, this is who I am, I want you to recognize me? Or, after he says, I am the God of your fathers, I've got a plan, there's a mission, there's a goal. Did, did he reveal to him a plan? Yes, he did. And the plan was to deliver Israelites, the Hebrews, from captivity. 
to set up a nation that would be priests or envoys or ambassadors of his kingdom to bring the world to a knowledge of God, to bless them in the crossroads of the world, living in harmony with God's design, that they'd be the healthiest, happiest, most blessed people on earth, so that the, like Sheba came to Solomon, the people would come to learn the truth about God. He had a plan. The lesson demonstrates that in the book of Daniel... Every chapter in the book of Daniel is a revelation about Christ. (coughs) Chapter 1 is a loose metaphor for our captivity in sin. Nebuchadnezzar takes Israel captive and leads them off, and he takes the articles of the temple. Uh, This is Satan taking humanity captive and, and the spirit temple captive. Daniel and his three friends, though, stay true to God and do not contaminate their spirit temple. It's a metaphor to Christ who comes to earth and keeps his spirit temple pure. Chapter 2, the kingdoms of the world fall one after another, eventually ending up fragmented and unable to be united until Christ sets up his kingdom. Chapter 3, Christ walks with his faithful servants through the fiery trials of this world, and the smoke does not enter their clothing. Clothing represents character, and so as we go through the fiery trials, the smoke of sin does not embed itself into our characters. Chapter 4, Christ therapeutically, and we're going to unpack this a little more, intervenes to heal Nebuchadnezzar of selfishness and pride. Chapter 5, Christ reveals that the methods and practices of this world result only in death, foreshadowing the coming of Christ to cleanse the world from sin. Chapter 6, Daniel is still captive in a pagan kingdom. Now we're in Medo-Persia, not Babylon. But stays true to God, keeps his spirit temple pure, and stands up to evil, and is sentenced to death based on lies. Is thrown into a pit, into the ground, but comes up out of the ground to be a ruler again in the nation. This loosely represents Christ who came to earth, kept his spirit temple pure, revealed God's truth, was sentenced to death all based on lies, went into the grave, but destroyed death, comes out of the grave to bring life and immortality to light, and of course, to rule. Chapter 7. Jesus in heaven receives his kingdom and reigns over the universe. Chapter 8. Christ as high priest applies his remedy to cleanse his people and prepare them to live in his presence. Chapter 9. Reveals Christ wins the victory by becoming the sacrificial lamb of God who destroys the infection of selfishness and establishes a new sinless and perfect humanity. Chapter 10 through 12 represents Christ as Michael leading the agencies, his agencies to fight the forces of evil, ultimately delivering his people from death. So, you find in every chapter of the book of Daniel, it centers on Christ and what Christ is trying to achieve in the context of the great controversy. That's the context. Monday's lesson, I'm kind of moving through what I think are the non-controversial, educational, and insightful points to get to some things that might be a little bit more uh, (laughs) stimulating of discussion. The lesson provides an outline, a structure, an overview for the book of Daniel. And if you look in the lesson, you'll see the structure. Uh, A, Nebuchadnezzar's vision of four kingdoms. Uh, B, God delivers Daniel and his friends from the fiery furnace. So a vision, a deliverance. Then C, judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar. Then C, again, another judgment upon Belshazzar. Then a B, a deliverance. God delivers Daniel from the lions. And, And then 
A again, uh, Daniel's vision of the four kingdoms. And the lesson points out that the structure is set up uh, to emphasize what's at the center. The center elements, according to the lesson, in this type of um, literary structure is to bring emphasis to the center portions, which in the way the lesson defines it is judgment. So the first question I have for you, what law lens (laughs) are you reading these through? Do we read it through the imposed human law lens and thus we read it to say that God inflicts punishment for sin upon people to force his way? Or do we read it through design law that God is evaluating reality and always working to heal and to save? Thus, in the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar, we find God looks at Nebuchadnezzar, diagnoses Nebuchadnezzar as having a sin and selfishness problem, but is not beyond healing. He needs a therapeutic action taken, and God disciplines those he loves, and so he judges the best action to bring Nebuchadnezzar to repentance is the seven years of insanity. And so he brings an action not to punish, but to save. It was his judgment, like a doctor evaluates a condition and makes a judgment. This is most likely going to bring healing to this person. Do we view it that way through design law lens? And then we do, do we view Belshazzar the same way? God looks at Belshazzar and evaluates his heart and diagnoses him as having the same condition, but his condition has progressed to the point that his heart is hardened beyond healing. No therapeutic interventions will have any benefit upon him, and so he does what doctors do to patients. He lets them go. He doesn't use his power to inflict harm on him. He sets him free to reap what he has chosen. And that leads to death separation from god so there's a great object lesson in this does this yeah provide an object lesson for us today god intervenes diagnosis makes judgments for those who are healable and will bring actions or consequences or disciplinary events to their life to bring them to repentance but for those who harden themselves against god he leaves them free to reap the destruction that their rebellious choices naturally reap. There are lessons here. Last paragraph, it says, In the book of Daniel, God also uses repetition. There are four prophetic cycles, which are uh, repetitions of an overall basic structure. In the end, the structure shows shows the ultimate sovereignty of God. First off, I agree completely that Daniel repeats and repeats these prophecies multiple times to emphasize and add greater detail with subsequent prophecies. But the lesson suggests that the purpose of this is to show God's sovereignty. What do you think about that? I'm unclear what they mean. This is one of those places that can mean a couple different things. If they simply mean that the conclusion of each prophecy shows God wins and is ultimately sovereign. If you just read the prophecy, and then at the end, God sets up his kingdom and is sovereign, okay, that's what the prophecies do teach. I I get that. That makes sense. I I first read it, though, as the fact that he's able to tell the prophecies, the fact that he knows how the future events are going to hold. His foreknowledge uh, proves his sovereignty. That, to me, didn't quite make sense. Foreknowledge is foreknowledge. It's knowledge. It's not sovereign. 
necessarily. People can have knowledge without having sovereignty. So that quite didn't matter. But if you mean the end of the prophecy, then, then I get that. Um, I, I want to go on because I want to unpack this idea a, a little more. In Tuesday's lesson, it differentiates, again, classical prophecy from um, apocalyptic prophecy. And apocalyptic prophecy has visions, dreams, composite symbols. And it says divine sovereignty and unconditionality. And the fifth paragraph says, divine sovereignty and unconditionality, in contrast to classical prophecies, whose fulfillment is often dependent upon human response in the context of God's covenant with Israel, apocalyptic prophecy are unconditional. In apocalyptic prophecy, God reveals the rise and fall of world empires from Daniel's day to the end of time. This kind of prophecy rests on God's foreknowledge and sovereignty and will happen regardless of human choices. Yeah, a question. I was like, my brain started spinning here on this one. What do you think of that last sentence, regardless of human choices? Does this mean that God makes it happen? Or are apocalyptic prophecies, God's understanding of the rise and falls of nations and so forth, are these actually because he foreknows human choices, knows the choices they'll make before they make them, and thus is able to tell the prophetic outcomes, but is not causing them? So, in other words, it's dependent upon his sovereignty and human choices. But he also knows how he's going to intervene. When the Medes and Persians invaded Babylon, were there no human choices involved? When Alexander the Great led the Greek armies to overthrow Persia, are we saying Alexander didn't actually make any choices? So the apocalyptic prophecies are revelations of God's sovereignty, foreknowledge, but are they also still dependent on human choices? Choices he foreknows, but the choices the human makes, not God makes. So God's influence on those choices. Do we see in scripture places God influence people's choices? I think one of the classics would be upon the king of Persia. This is a classic. Did the king of Persia choose or did God choose? When the choice was made, whose choice? How about Pharaoh? Did God try to influence Pharaoh's choices? There's more evidence than most people ever get. And who made the choice? So, yes, and let's be clear now. Do we believe that the Holy Spirit of truth is working to influence every human heart and choice? But are we still free to make our own choices? So I agree there's influence, but influence doesn't actually take away our freedom to choose, does it? I have a book here, and it's, it's already been written by people. And I read the whole thing, but in my life of book or in the in the Hearst history, in God's view, it is already a written book. He can see it just as easily. And if, if I only read part of the book, I, I think, "Oh, I don't know what's coming." Maybe I, you know. But He has read the entire book, even though we've read this part. He knows what choices we're going to make, despite His influence and so on. You know, and so for him, it's a written book already that he's read and is simply telling us this is ultimately what's going to happen. So this brings up the question of God's foreknowledge. Some would hear what she said and say they reject that because if it's already a written book, then we're predestined, we're predetermined, 
It's already written down somewhere, and therefore we actually don't have freedom when the time comes because it's preordained and predetermined uh, in God's book somewhere that this is the way it must unfold. And they would argue that. And, and I would tell you those who argue this um, uh, do so because they have a love for God and they have love for God's character and they don't want to undermine the principles of freedom upon which love is based and they view that this idea of God's foreknowledge, actually knowing our choices before we make them, is a undermining of our liberties and our freedom that, that it makes us uh, subjects to fate or some predetermined outcome. And this is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of how reality works because they confuse foreknowledge with causality. I appreciate their heart to protect God's motive, God's characters, and we do too. However, they make several key errors. One is is misunderstanding this reality about foreknowledge and causality because knowledge is not causal. If you had a time machine, you could travel into the future and watch the next Super Bowl and come back today, and, and you know all the plays and the final score, does your current knowledge, having gone into the future and seen it, cause those plays to happen like that? No, it's not causal. Those people still make those decisions and those actions. Those who believe God can't know our future because it could take away our freedom might try and cite quantum experiments that have demonstrated the observer effect. And the observer effect is when you observe, measure uh, something, like the electrons or photons and so forth, it is the act of observing or measuring that actually causes the outcome. Is it a wave or is it a particle? Until you measure it or observe it, it isn't determined. It's your action of measuring and, deter- uh, and, 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 uh, and observing it that determines whether it becomes a wave or a particle. And so they might try to cite this quantum um, reality as... God, if God were to look into the future, which he has the power to do, they don't deny that, but if he were to do it, then his act of looking into the future then becomes causal. And we don't really have the freedom to act because he's made the impact by measuring and looking. What is the problem with... and this? The quantum stuff is really reliable on this. It's the measuring that determines whether it's a, the outcome. So, so, but what's the problem with trying to apply this? in this circumstance. The problem is, and this is where they forget, another piece of reality, that God is not constrained to live within a linear existence. He lives outside of our space-time continuum. And therefore, he is observing from outside it, and his observations do not, just observing it, do not ca- are not causal. We, however, are in the space-time continuum, and any action we take has an impact on the world around us. Metaphorically speaking, we're in a swimming pool of water. Any action we take in that pool affects the water around us. God's outside the pool. He can observe without actually affecting the water. It's a metaphor. We're not actually in water. We're in in space-time. He's not in space-time. He's outside it. He created it. He sustains it. Yes? There must be multiple dimensions because Jesus said that no one knows the day or the hour of his coming, including the angels do not know. So there are things God knows that are beyond. Of course, because angels live in a linear existence. They can't. They don't see it ahead. That's right, because they live in this space-time continuum, so they don't know. So if you read in 1 Timothy 6.16, it says God lives in unapproachable light. Unapproachable. By whom? 
He is an infinite being. Infinite. Finite beings cannot enter into infinity. It's beyond our capacity. Thus, it's unapproachable by finite beings. Unapproachable by Lucifer. He can't enter into it. Only an infinite being can enter infinity. It's not restrictive. And understanding this reality helps understand some historical context in the great controversy. If we can't enter infinity, but God is a being of love who wants intimacy with us, then what must happen to have closer intimacy? A member of the God that has to leave infinity and step into linear existence. And that member has always been Jesus. In heaven, he was Michael the archangel, not an angel-created being, an infinite God being who stepped into linear existence and took the form of an angel to interact with his creation. And when we fell into sin, he actually took a greater step and permanently entered linear existence. He took humanity. He will never surrender. So he's not now. He is restricted by his humanity in ways he was never restricted prior to his incarnation. And the Holy Spirit now is the agency that represents him in all places and all times. It was a sacrifice beyond our comprehension that he made for us. Beyond our comprehension, we will never fully, because we're not infinite, we will never fully appreciate the sacrifice. We will gain insight into the sacrifice. But God, again, living outside space-time, and even said, not the angels, but the Son. Now, in heaven, God, the Father, just like he can to beings on earth, can God, to Daniel, reveal future events to Daniel? Daniel lives in a space-time continuum. He doesn't know the future, but God can reveal it to him. And God can reveal to his son in heaven the day and the hour. So my personal opinion is while walking on earth as a human being, working out our salvation, he was not privy to that information and he didn't know it. But I personally believe now that he's in heaven, God has revealed the future to him and he knows the day and the hour. I don't think that's restricted from Christ. That's my personal view. Yes? So a lot of what you just said about quantum. Uh, without the observance, it's still going to happen. Being able to measure it only shows that it's what is going to happen. So in our space-time continuum, when we measure and observe the photons, it, it's causal. God, on the other hand, is outside, so his observations are not causal. It, we, it's our actions that make it causal. If we don't act to cause the event, then it doesn't happen. Unless God himself sometimes does act in human history. We have lots of places where God acts in history, so he can act in our history, and he acts in governance of himself. I, I want to move on to some other, other elements here. Uh, here's a uh, quotation of Patriarchs and Prophets, though, page 43, for those who value that book. It says, He that ruleth the heavens is the one that sees the end from the beginning, the one before whom the mysteries of the past and future are alike outspread. He has perfect knowledge of history in the past. He has perfect knowledge of the future uh, unfolding. So if you value that book. Uh, Wednesdays talks about different ways of interpreting Bible prophecy. I'm going to go through this real quick because I want to jump to Thursday. I think that's going to eat up a lot of discussion. Uh, uh, And the different ways are preterism, which views Bible prophecy as already happening in the past. Futurism, that waits for some future time to fulfill it. Idealism, that holds it's all symbolic of our spiritual development. And historicism, which holds that the prophecies reveal unbroken history, unfolding um, reality as a sequence of events 
happening linearly. I believe the last two actually are combined. My personal view is that it is historical, and it's historical unfolding events happening that also have spiritual meaning <laughs> to me. That's my view. I think we can take spiritual lessons from any of the prophecies that are historical in, in reality. Thursday's lesson, second paragraph um, in Thursday's lesson, and I want you guys to be impressed that we're in Thursday's lesson with time to go. <laughs> okay? You notice that. You mark that on your calendar there. Okay. In Thursday's lesson, it, uh, in the paragraph, points out that some, uh, something we've been discussing here for some time, that the Bible records real people who did real historical things, but these real historical lives also have a metaphorical reality to a, uh, metaphorical lesson to a larger reality. We've, we've been kind of hammering this idea home about the Old Testament as well. And they talk about the experience of Daniel in Babylon, and Joseph in Egypt, and Esther in Persia. Um, First question, though, why was Daniel in Babylon, Joseph in Egypt, and Esther in Persia? Why? I don't disagree with you. But that's not the ultimate reason. That's a secondary reason. Because Satan was trying to destroy the avenue for the Messiah and leading the people into these actions. So you're right, there was these sinful actions and behaviors, the brothers are jealous, and, but who stirred up all that jealousy? Okay? So Satan is working to destroy the avenue for Messiah, and this is why they end up in rebellion against God over and over again, because he is constantly, remember, remember Balaam's advice to the nations around them, you want to destroy these people, bring in women to have them marry, and then corrupt them by having worship false gods. Okay? So Joseph, though, notice the metaphorical applications. Joseph who was sold by his brothers into slavery, becomes a uh, um, ruler and able to um, save his family. Esther intervenes to prevent the slaughter of family and so forth. So Joseph, sold by his brothers, Philippians tells Jesus was in heaven, became all the way down, even to the form of a servant, in order to overcome and save us. Um, he was, uh, Joseph was thrown, was falsely accused, put into a dungeon, pit metaphors for the grave. Jesus, arri- he arises from that pit in order to rule and save. Jesus arises from the grave in order to rule and save. The story of Esther, though, gives a different object lesson, in my view. Where were the people of Israel supposed to be if they were following God's directives and revealed will in the time of Mordecai and Esther? Where were they supposed to be literally, physically living? In Israel. They were not supposed to still be in Medo-Persia. He t- it, they, the, the degree had been to set free, go back, rebuild the temple, rebuild the city. So we have Mordecai and Esther disobeying the revealed will of God. Being where they're not supposed to be. Have you ever heard it taught that if you go into that particular theater, your angels will not go in with you? <laughs> The recording one to record the evil deed, but your your guardian angel won't go in with you. Or if you do, if you if you knowingly disobey God, that that God abandons you, basically. The story of Esther shows that's not true. The story of Esther shows because in this journey, every one of us has made decisions we know weren't right. And then we've suffered, and they suffered. They were, because they were where they're not supposed to be, they came under death threat. And it was that death threat that led them to humble repentance and seeking God. And in that humble repentance and fasting and prayer and seeking God, God opened an avenue for their deliverance. And when we go down a path that we know we shouldn't, we will often, in fact always, 
find ourselves in some sort of straits. Jonah. Jonah. There you go. And in those straits, if our hearts are still healable, we will come under conviction, we'll humble ourselves, we'll ask God, and God provides deliverance. He does not abandon us. He stays with us, seeking to help us. This is a powerful metaphor so that we are not discouraged. It does not give us license to do whatever we want. Just the opposite. And Daniel, we've already discussed that one. Third paragraph, it says, and this is where we think we'll get into some, maybe some issues. God steers the course of history. At times we feel troubled by the confused and aimless world that is full of sin and violence, but the message of Daniel is that God stands in control. If a person comes to you and tells you that either they or their child were molested as a child, do you say, well, God is in control? Why not? Why do you not say to the person whose child just got molested, well, God is in control? Why do you not say that? Is he not, do you not believe God is in control? What is wrong with you people? Or somebody comes to you, or maybe tragically you've had the experience of a child being killed in a car accident. Do you say at that moment, well, God is in control? A lot of people do. I just read that yesterday. And if you say that, what message are you sending? If a person comes to you grieving the death of a child in an auto accident and you say God is in control, are you saying, or the child that was molested, are you saying that God controlled the molester? God controlled the car? God controlled the drunk driver? Is that what you're saying? And if you're not saying that, what do you say to the person who said... Why did God let my child get molested? Doesn't he care? Is he not in control? Yes. I haven't heard anyone say God is in control in relationship to a very tragic thing like the molestation. But I do hear them all the time when they're sick and they go to the hospital. They say, you know, have cancer, get chemo, and they say God is in control. Other thoughts, you see? Where do we put this? So... A blanket statement, from my perspective, a blanket statement that God is in control, just blanket, God's in control, is, in my view, a way to introduce confusion, misunderstanding, and lead some people away from God. So what's a better way to say it? A more accurate way, a way that won't cause confusion. How about if we said, God is in control of what God controls? Now, that... that did, didn't it like a light just go off in your head? God is in control of what God... So the next question, well, what does he control, right? Isn't that the question you have to ask now? What does he control? The key to understanding this, God is in control, is essentially the key to understanding every Bible and theology question. Essentially every one. This is the key that will unlock it for you. And what's the question? What law lens are you asking the question through? That's the key. If one uses uh, the human law lens, 
God makes up rules like we do, and therefore justice requires that God oversee the enforcement of his rules, and therefore God keeps an accurate record of all the misdeeds done that broke his rules, and therefore there'll be a tribunal one day in which he has a trial, and therefore God and justice will have to make punishment against those who haven't gotten the legal payment made by Jesus' blood. If this is the the view that people hold, then God is in control of what actually happens. If a tragedy happened, it must be in some way God's will. I think that'd be a good statement. After you've gone through your healing and recognize it, maybe say like to celebrate recovery, God is in control. I had pain in my life and he's seen me through it. That would be a good statement. Some say God is directing hurricanes and earthquakes because he's in control, bringing punishment. Some who reject the punishing God, but don't reject the imposed law. They reject God as the source of pain and suffering, but they still hold the imposed law. You know where where it leads them. I know God's love. I know God would never harm. God would never kill. But they still view God as imperialistic, as making things happen. You know where it leads them. Universalism. Therefore, in the end, God will save everyone. Because his divine will and his power of love will overcome them in the end, and they will all give in. This is, this is where it goes. That's because they don't understand design law, how reality works. A level of spiritual maturity plays into this. Those at the first four levels of spiritual maturity, I don't have to have to go into all those levels today, but they, in some level, in some way, view um, right and wrong as behavioral, the deeds that you do, the choices you make. And therefore, they tend to view God as the cause and God is in control of what actually happened. He made it happen. Levels 5 through 7, though, have a different understanding of reality and they view um, a certain, they view it for the design law lens and understand how liberty works. So the truth is realized. You see, and the, by the way, the problem with those who hold the imposed law view and believe that God makes everything happen, They often become disillusioned and give up a belief in God when the bad thing happens after they've kept the rules. So, and they don't understand how a child is molested when the child hadn't had time to break the rules yet. So they'll put it on themselves. Well, it was my fault because I I didn't have my TV off. My TV was 30 seconds going off when the sun set. So I broke the rule, therefore that's, that's why my child... They'll, they'll find some irrational, illogical, or they'll give up a belief in God altogether. The truth is realized when we accept God as creator and his laws or the protocols in which reality are built, how reality actually works. Thus, God controls what God controls, and God controls himself and all of his laws. He sustains reality. He keeps the universe running. The sun shines on the wicked and the righteous. The rain falls on the wicked and the righteous. He is a constant being who sustains his reality. One of those is the law of liberty, which grants real freedom to sentient beings. Why? Because love only exists in an atmosphere of freedom. He sustains the law of liberty. And when you understand God controlling himself and his laws, then you understand how the Bible can say, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 4, 21 and 7, 3. But the Bible can also say, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Exodus 8, 15 and 32. How do we understand that? How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Here's how. By presenting the truth, as it was said earlier, to Pharaoh, and then leaving Pharaoh free to accept or reject it. Accepting and rejecting 
causes the outcome. Either healing, as we accept the truth, the truth sets you free, or hardening. The act of choosing or accepting the truth to embrace love or embrace selfishness, to steal, lie, and cheat, or to be honest, truthful, and loyal, changes the person who makes the choice. Without the truth presented, without the truth presented, and the freedom to reject it, Pharaoh's heart would not have become as hardened. Thus, God hardened Pharaoh's heart through the law of truth and freedom. He presented truth and left Pharaoh free. God controlled his laws, but Pharaoh controlled his choices. And thus Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And this is how we understand reality, and this is what sets us free. There's a hand in the back. We'll take the question and then close. God's grace and mercy has caused him to create this, what we call probation, this bubble of Artificial reality. Right. There you so go. He can save as many as he can. Yep. Because he's not willing that any should perish. The side effect of him doing that is that we misconstrue him while we're in that bubble. That's right. And we misread him. And so this, the control that we are speaking of with the understanding that we have is outside of that bubble, God knows love is going to ultimately, love is life. So it's inevitable that the only reason why death is not yet dead is because of that bubble where he's trying to save us. And in, in, in that bubble, we can often, in our fallen state, be confused about the actions that happen and misconstrue. And he will even say things to us that we may misunderstand. Or like Job, um, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh. Right, sure. You know, we'll misunderstand these things, but when we understand the creator God, the designer God, the one who designs out of his character of love, then we have a better understanding while we're in this bubble. And even though I can't knit it all together, I know enough that where those empty spaces are that I can't explain. I don't, I don't know why this was allowed. I do know there is, a, there is a threat of control in the sense that love is still ultimately... God controls himself and he controls his laws, ultimately the law of love. Uh, let me clarify the statement, the artificial bubble of reality. Okay. Um, we li- I'm not suggesting this isn't a real world. That we live in some, you know, matrix or some virtual world. No, this is a real world. Artificial bubble means it's shielded from God's full, unveiled, life-giving glory that He used to walk among Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Okay, and uh, that will happen again once the earth is made new. It says in Revelation, there'll be no need for the sun and moon to light it because God's presence will be His light. So this is the only space that I know of in the universe where there is intelligent beings currently operating that are hidden from God's life-giving glory. The angels in heaven uh, stand before the throne and and rivers of fire come out from before him and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands stand in that fire. We're shielded from it because we can't survive it right now. And so God in grace has shielded us. And so it says in Romans, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He left the consequences of eternal annihilation uh, at rest. And thus that first sleep, of, that first death of sleep is also an, a condition of grace that allows individualities to exist. Those who believe in me will never die, Christ said. They still exist. They're not dead. They're at rest, waiting for the resurrection for them to continue on with their life. That's also an, a state of grace that God has provided to allow the plan of salvation to be worked out. So I believe in, we're in a feel, real physical world, but it is artificially through God's grace permitted to operate in this state for the purpose of saving his creation. 
Gracious Father in heaven, we are so amazed and awed at the beauty of your character. We ask that you will send your spirit of truth and love, transform our hearts and minds, and help us be more effective to tell the truth about you um, so that this world can be lighted with your glory and that you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.